You're listening to the Naomi Ray Show. My name is Thomas Daam. I'm at Vict Amsterdam. It's 21st of February 2017. My guest is Liam Young. Welcome. Thanks. Can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm Liam Young and I am a speculative architect and I work between documentary, fiction and futures. And okay. that's to say that really what I do is tell stories about the global and urban implications of emerging technologies and we use techniques from film, fiction and performance to explore what the future might look like and what are the emerging trends that are beginning to shape those futures from around the world. When did you know that you wanted to be an architect? Um, I, th I think architecture is one of the few professions left that still allows you to explore a whole range of different subject areas, right? Like architects can sit in a bar and have a beer with an artist and have an interesting conversation or mm -hmm. a filmmaker or an engineer or a developer. And very few disciplines are left that have that same breadth of knowledge. Mm -hmm. What always attracted me about architecture was that it was concerned with how people interact with each other in space, mm -hmm. in cities, in the world. And I think it's really so fundamental to how we all live. Um, so I wanted to be a part of imagining stories about how that works and designing the spaces and where in, in, in where people get together and form communities. Okay, so and where did this transition came that you become a speculative architect? Yeah, I mean, what, what we've seen happening across the last couple of years is that the forces that used to shape the city or used to shape architecture were very much in the d domain of the traditional architect, mm -hmm. right? Like concrete, bricks, steel, these things really mattered in the making of cities, you know, big physical infrastructures, public spaces. But now the forces that shape the city are at the scale of a phone that sits in my pocket, or it's a network, it's a system, it's a fiber optic cable, it's a network of connections that span the planet. So for an architect who's concerned about change and concerned about how cities are formed and how people interact in cities, it was necessary to expand what it was we did beyond the traditions of making buildings. Mm. So now I tell stories about those technologies because the story, the speculative project, the fiction about the future becomes a space in which to prototype ways in which the future is going to be mm. formed and cities are going to be formed. So it's a way of just staying relevant, I suppose, because the you know, traditional making of buildings no longer affects the city in the same way that it did. You moved to the medium of film and documentary, and mm -hmm. why did you choose for this form to tell your story? Yeah, I mean, I think... It's funny, when we train as an architect, we spend five, six, seven years even learning the conventions of that discipline, things like plans, sections, diagrams, and these are really codified languages that, that don't talk to broad audiences, right? It takes all that time to learn how to read them and understand them. But the things we're talking about are actually really important in how cities work, you know, like traffic patterns, how we use public spaces, um, uh, infrastructure and systems in the city, all these things define who we are and how we interact. So we have moved away from those very specific disciplinary forms of representation and mm. communication to something more universal, which is stories and fiction. Like, you know, it, it was, ever since we could sit up, we were st stuck in front of the TV 
watching stories or we fell asleep as someone was reading a, a, a bedtime story yeah. to us, right? This is how our culture shares and disseminates ideas, you know, all the way back from when a tribal culture told stories about not to go into the forest because there were monsters there. That was really yeah. to say the forest is dangerous, stay close to the village, right? What we try and do is, like Trojan horses, we implant important critical ideas about the future inside the the envelope of a story so that we can disseminate those ideas to much broader audiences you know that's the power of popular culture you can talk to people much you know uh, you know huge numbers of people about the forces of technology that are changing and shaping their world because in the end the future isn't something that just happens to us right it's something that we all play a role in shaping and defining so how do we enable a public to make more in, informed decisions about the future that they want to have right like what what do you want your phone to do next you know, what what bit of technology do you want what do you want to automate of your city or your house do we want driverless cars all of these things are really important questions that as a public we're not being active enough about um, deciding on whether we want these things or not they just get sold to us true yeah so but an architect isn't traditionally a storyteller yeah in a way it? i mean that's funny traditional architecture even just the the sheer prosaic model of making buildings is still a futurist profession because mm. buildings take so long and yeah, so much true. money to be built right so you know i've worked on projects that have had 10 15 year time cycles from the moment that the architect did the cliched sketch on a napkin to when the doors open and the public ends is 15 years, mm. right? So by very definition, we need to be future forecasters because essentially we're making projects for a future. We're yeah. designing a future, right, that aren't going to be enacted for 15 years. And we're also trying to convince a client with millions and millions of dollars that that's a future they should spend money on. So by definition, we're optimists and futurists and storytellers what i do a lot at the moment is what we call world building which is designing and imagining the cities of the future and the worlds that film takes place in and i think it's very much the same process of making buildings where you design a context and then you put characters in that context and imagine what they might do mm. and then you change the design to tweak it and to enhance their experience mm. in some way. And that's essentially what production design is in film or concept art is in film. You invent an imaginary world and then you put characters in it mm. and see what happens. Do they fall in love? Do they fight? Do they mm. get lost? Do they have some grand awakening or are they horrified? Mm. You know. So I think the overlaps between architecture and disciplines like film, production design, um, advertising, is really strong. And I think it's such a shame that traditionally architects have defined themselves purely around the making of buildings, whereas something that we do is so important that we must be embracing all these different forms of media to get our ideas out. And that's what we try and do. Is mm. the city a character in, the, in, yeah. your, in your story? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the same way that like, you can't, you can't look at Batman without understanding Gotham City, right? right? Like Gotham City is a character in the story and, and he feeds off it and he protects it and in the same way you know I think that's how we relate to cities as well right they're characters in our lives and and I do storytelling performances and make films about these imaginary cities mm. 
where the city itself is of interest to me, right? And what we do is we design and imagine alternative cities, future cities, and we inhabit them through films or through performances like I did today as a way of looking back in on the cities that we're familiar with, on the cities that we all live in, and try and think about them differently, right? So we design alternative cities as a means to understand our own city in new ways, right? It's this cliche of when you go traveling, you're not actually traveling to a distant place to see that place. You're traveling as a means to come back to the place you started, but to see it with fresh eyes. And I think that's the power of science fiction, that's the power of storytelling, is that it creates a way of looking back in on the present that's become so familiar that we, that, that we need the story, we need the fiction in order to shake us out of it mm. and to see it for actually what it really is. Yeah. To create the, these stories, you go on expeditions mm-hmm. through all over the world mm-hmm. um, with your studio and on field divisions. Yep. You do research, um, mapping, yep. like, uh, you document everything, you document the infrastructures behind the cities and behind yep. the industries that are... Yep all around the world um, that's creating the network, like for example, did research on the material that goes in the, the lithium yep. batteries. So you're making visible yeah. what's or what's what we already see like in our daily life or not yeah. not see and you you show the whole process behind it and yep. then you you uh, you create uh, documentaries about it. But what do all those projects have in common and what do mm. they tell about the future? Yeah, I mean, what we're trying to do, I mean, there's two aspects of my practice. Is One is documentary-based practice, which is called Unknown Fields, that I run with another architect called Kate Davies. And we travel behind the scenes of technology to see the landscapes that produce what we think of as being our futures. Um, and we travel around the world to try and find these alternative stories. Um, and we're interested in this idea that like there's a quote from William Gibson, who's a science fiction author who wrote Neuromancer, the, the novel where the word cyberspace first appears. And he says that the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed. So kind of what we do with Unknown Field is travel to these landscapes to uncover these pockets of the future and to document them, like documentary film crews would. And then what I do in my own practice, Tomorrow's Thoughts a Day, my speculative practice is, is, is more fiction-based, where we take those emerging trends that we've identified in those places and we exaggerate them or we extrapolate them into possible futures. Mm. And through that process of projection, we can kind of see whether or not these trends are positive and productive or whether they're scary and they somehow need to be um, mitigated or we need to protect ourselves from them. So really what all these stories, both the fictional stories and the documentary, real stories, are trying to do is examine our contemporary relationships to technology, right? And and we think it's urgent right now because technology is evolving so much faster than our cultural capacity to understand it. You know, I, I call them before culture technologies, right? That they've they've been developed faster than the ideologies or the political relationships to them, you know, like things even something as simple as file sharing we don't have a legal structure to understand what that means like why when i read a book and give it to you after i've finished that's sharing when i watch a movie put on a usb drive and give it to you that's piracy um or understanding the regulations about drone flights or understanding 
the structures of driverless cars? Should it? What, what's the ethics of whether or not it should run over an old lady versus a group mm. of school kids? Um, what does it mean that we can record everything? Every aspect of our lives stays on the internet forever. Like all of these things are massive, disruptive events in our human history. But we don't really have a cultural capacity to understand what any of them mean. So what we try and do with all these stories is, is try and explore what they mean. What, what are the cultural relationships and the new forms of culture, the new forms of agency that emerge in the context of all these new advances in technology? So that's why we use the stories to do it. We prototype these possible relationships mm -hmm. to these technologies mm -hmm. as a way to test them. We do a lot of work around drones at the moment because we think that these are a technology that are really going to totally change the nature of the city. And I've done a couple of projects. One is called Drone Orchestra, and they've all been sponsored by DJI, the world's biggest drone manufacturer. And what these projects are trying to do is create a new new kind of conversation around these technologies. At the moment, we think of these things as being distant technologies and drifting out of sight. They're way above eye line, flying around invisibly, spying on people or dropping bombs. And that's pretty much true. Yeah. But there are also now more civilian drones in the air than there are military drones. You can now go to your local hobby shop and buy a drone that's super stable with a camera for less than $300, and everyone has one. So these things are also becoming cultural objects as well as military objects. So what are the new uses that we can use with them? How do we shift the conversation from being a militaristic one or a voyeuristic one to being a cultural one? So we did a project called Drone Orchestra where we mounted on board drones a bunch of speakers, mm -hmm. and then we did a live performance with John Cale, formerly the Velvet Underground, and their band played through the drones as they drifted above the audience's yeah. head, right? It was a totally new audio-visual experience yeah. based on the drone, and it was riffing off the way that people used to carry around ghetto blasters in the 80s and um, form impromptu mm -hmm. jams on the middle of the sidewalk. Um, we just did a film called In the Robot Skies, which is the first fiction film shot entirely with drones. And it was again using DJI drones, but we were trying to explore a new future context where drones were tools of surveillance and police drones where they're monitoring a council estate in London, like a social housing project where there's a guy in one tower and a girl mm. in another tower that are being kept separated yeah. by this network of drones. And the, the kids find a way to hack the drones and pass love, message, love messages to each other, yeah. right? So... Drones are both mechanisms of police surveillance, but they can also be hacked and played with and used as tools to fall in love, right? And what we're trying to do is, is raise the possibility of both sides of that story. So it's important to dive headlong into the technology, to research how it's being used, to research what the developments are, and to find ways to break it or to find ways to tell alternative stories than the ones that the media is telling us. And, and that's what we do. And we've done, our new project is called Where the City Can't See, and it's exploring the implications of driverless car technologies. You know, another technology which is, again, going to fundamentally change the city, but we just don't know what that new city looks like.
Um, and if you're an architect or urbanist and you're not interested in how driverless cars are changing the world, you're in total denial. So, you know, we've done lots of research around these technologies. We've consulted for Ford um, in their visions of the driverless car future for the Detroit Motor Show. And we've made our own film, which is trying to look at what it means when so many elements within our, in our city become automated and based on algorithms. What's the ethics of those mm. algorithms? Who decides how the car should work, mm. what it should, what its value system is, um, what a street is in that context, what happens to the old car parks mm. um, that we used to need, what happens to ownership in that context, you know, when now cars just become things that you rent, opposed to things that you own. All of these questions are super interesting, but we haven't resolved any of them and the driverless car is already here. Yeah. You know, the drone is already as ubiquitous as pigeons, but we're still asking these questions about what the hell these technologies mean. So what we try and do is, is try and get on the debate about these technologies as quickly as possible to get these stories out into the world as quickly as possible with as much power and force and emotion as possible so that people can start asking these questions and, dem and demanding um, responses from the companies that are, that are fundamental in making them. Mm. But like you say that you um, do research for Ford, for example, mm -hmm. and, and through your research they change their perspective or is it a, um, they already look in this direction that they are? Well, just, yeah, they, they, like all these tech companies are trying to figure out what the future that they're making might look like, mm. right? So they know that these technologies are going to be disruptive. They know that they're important and they're going to change things. Mm. And they want people to speculate on how that might be, right? And they, they want to own those futures yes, when it comes course, down to it. Yes, of course, they can make money out of it. Yeah. And they can... They can survive yeah. also yeah. in this new in this new world that is uh, emerging yeah. now um, if you have to go in a um, self-driving car now mm -hmm. would you go in it totally yeah totally yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean I, I i'm not like i think it's a mistake to like i i'm not anti-technology and i'm not a luddite that thinks that things were better off before we had mobile phones um All these things endlessly fascinate me and I'm amazed by our capacity to create them. And my vision of the future isn't one where we regress back to a point where we lived in huts and raised chickens and pigs. Mm. I think that's total denial. I think the myth of localism and you know, growing our own vegetables on rooftops is a total fantasy. Mm. Um, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. All these technologies are here to stay and we're not going to give them up. All I'm interested in is how we look at these things as the pro as producers of culture, right? You can't separate technology from culture. Yeah. Um, so we shouldn't talk about them as inventions. We should talk about them as being extensions of ourselves and then start to go, well, what, what do ourselves look like mm. in this context? What does it mean for us? Is it good or is it bad? Like technology just isn't inherently useful. Yeah. Sometimes it's terrible. And it's not the solution to problems. It just exaggerates problems that already exist. And the sooner we realize that, I think it, the better technologies we're going to make, right? Like all of these things are just like they're, they're fraught with the same contradictions as ourselves, right? And a drone can be a wonderful tool that we can use to send love letters to each other or make music. Mm -hmm. 
but it can also be used to spy through a teenage girl's bedroom window or to drop a bomb on a 12-year-old girl in Afghanistan in the same way that, you know, we can have a lovely conversation here in this room or we can go downstairs and have a terrible, brutal fight, you know. Um, uh, Technology isn't going to fix any of those tendencies, right? that's true. Um, It's just going to exaggerate them. So if we start to talk about them like that and to not just use the same marketing spin that we're we're sold it through, um, we're not just making commercials for Apple, we're not Mm. just doing the next car ad, but we're trying to embrace the complexity that all these technologies have, then I think um, we're going to be better off for it. Yeah, so you can, so that people understand better what's um, what they can expect for the near future. Yeah, and also so that people can be more active agents in demanding the future that they want to have, yeah. right? Rather than just sitting waiting for the next tech keynote, mm. and, you know. And Elon Musk comes out and says, "Hey, I've got a new battery, and it's going to power the world. Everything's going to go solar." And it's going to be great. Here's a battery. Buy it now. Stick it in your garage, and we'll go off grid, right? But you know, we saw that tech keynote, which was being hailed as one of the most profound and, and game-changing keynotes since Steve Jobs launched the iPod. And we said, okay, that sounds great, but where's all the raw materials coming from to build these batteries? Where's the lithium coming from? And he has to buy Bolivia in order to make this future possible. So it's not going to happen, right? Um, Or if it is, it's going to totally destroy an entire South American country. Like, look at what's happening with the rare earth mineral industry, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, entire corporations own massive chunks of landscape. So it could well happen, right? But Elon Musk isn't a grand, noble hero. He has a vision, certainly, and I think that vision is much better than a fossil fuel vision Mm. of the future. But it's complicated. And I think it's better if we embrace those complexities. Um, And then we can make decisions about whether or not they're productive futures and futures we want to have or or whether they're futures that we should run away from, right? Um, I mean, you know, we also have done research around rare earths and we've gone to China and and looked at the rare earth mines and looked at the horrific toxic landscapes that those produce and one of the biggest producers of that rare earth is the wind turbine industry and that's not to say again that that wind energy is bad but we need to understand that that no form of energy is actually green, right? Mm. that it's all complicated and we need to put those discussions on the table to see whether or not they're compromises that we're that, that we're willing to make, and maybe they are. Mm. Um, but we should just acknowledge the complexity that comes with all these technologies. There's no magic bullet. There's no grand solution that is without consequence. Um, and the sooner we start to talk about all those consequences and talk about all of that nuance, the stronger our arguments are going to be for these futures, and the more believable these futures are going to be. I want to go from these futures mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. are talking about mm-hmm. uh, um, through your presentation that you gave today, yep. Hello City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it is, an, I found it is an, a very interesting way of presenting all the projects mm-hmm. and all the work that you are doing. So your presentation is a like a storytelling uh, performance. How did your presentation started like this? And the work that we were doing became more and more film based. You know, as, as we 
found the power of that medium to emotionally connect to people and to tell complicated stories that span multiple sites, multiple times. And I was just looking for a medium of communication that somehow captured the same weight and storytelling potential as the films do, right? And I don't think a traditional tech conference keynote slash PowerPoint presentation does that, mm. you know, like just the, I call them the shit I done lectures, yeah, you yeah. know, where we go through a slide deck of here's a project I did for this company and here's a website I did for this company. Mm. Here's um, a little personal project that I did on the side. Like, um, and here's an inspirational quote. I think there's a real privilege and power that comes with standing on a podium, talking to a room full of people how do you emotionally engage them and get them on board and how do you wrap them up into your story somehow um so we developed this this technique i, I call it expanded cinema or live cinema yeah. where i could just get in there and press play on and show the films that we make but there's something about being in the room with people that you can kind of perform with them Right. So it's a similar model to when we would watch a silent film and do a have a live band doing a performance that runs in parallel. Like it's it's kinda like that where I, I narrate the script of a film and I do a live sound mix. Sometimes I have musicians that are performing live with me. Oh, wow. Um so it becomes like a big um multimedia yeah. event. Um uh and yeah the audiences really respond and it's i think a novel way to break up the traditional format of these kind of conferences yes, that's that's for sure i find it very interesting to see how you seamlessly knit yeah. together the projects i mean it was a great venue here here we were able to do a nine screen version of the performance which um, which i really enjoyed And it's connecting back to the early traditions of avant-garde cinema, actually. Like, there, in the 20s and 30s, there was a format called the City Symphony, which was a way of creating a portrait of a place through collaged film scenes, moments, stories, and visuals. And that's really what I try and do, is create these city symphonies. Yeah. Um, it just so happens that the city is generally not real. It's a fiction, or it's least, at least it's a construction of real and fictional yeah. moments. Do you imagine that the city that you present will look like that in a few years? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Most science fiction isn't actually about the future at all, right? No, it's it's, a, it's about yeah. the present. And in a way, the futures that I narrate are also futures that, for the most part, are already here. And I go back to that quote about William Gibson, the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed. In many ways, what these stories are are just stitching together these little fragments of the futures that exist in the present tense. Yeah. Um, and that's the reality of it, and that's kind of why I do these performances, is to try and um, like build an awareness in an audience that, that hey, this is going on. Mm -hmm. You know, if you walk outside the... The, the the door of this windowless room this is what's happening outside yeah. you know it may not be what we're presented in the dominant media narrative it may not be what um is the the the, the thing that we see on the news every night or the thing that we talk to our friends about when we go out to dinner but it's there
and it's hiding in plain sight. And a big part of the work that we do is revealing those truths that are that are lying dormant mm. in the city. Yeah, yeah, which is which is truly amazing. I want to go to like my final uh, mm-hmm. final question, mm-hmm. which is maybe a bit strange, mm-hmm. <laughs> because I saw on. Um, uh, on Twitter that you post every day or yep. when you land somewhere yeah, you yeah, post yeah, a photo yeah, of, yeah, a, yeah. of an airfield like yeah. a pre-takeoff or just land yeah, yeah, what's, yeah. what's that about? Yeah, I mean I for the last I think five years now I've been living nomadically so I'm away from home much more often than I'm at home yeah. so it became you know, a catalogue of just the places that I end up in but really what all of these different airport photos are are a portrait of a city that is smeared across the planet, right? Like this is my city. Yeah. You know, my city spans multiple airports, multiple continents, multiple countries, and it's the city of the Anthropocene. It's a city that we all occupy, yeah. right? Um, and these photographs are snapshots of that. And the irony is that they all are kind of interchangeable. That the airport in India looks pretty much the same as the airport in Amsterdam, which looks the same as the airport in Sydney. And it really is this continuous landscape that spans the planet. And yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. I I also thought it's also like creating your own data and what do they, like what's saying about you traveling around and discovering all those things that you are are feeling and... Yeah, I guess, I mean, it's me following the network basically. Um, So it becomes another kind of network diagram. Um, It's also a a very scary portrait of my carbon footprint, which is um, pretty, pretty massive. Um, uh, But yeah, it's a it's a new kind of network and in a way it's a network that maybe I'm extreme but it's a network that we all kind of occupy right um, and um, the sooner we start thinking about cities and places and spaces as being this network condition as opposed to just a single point on the map the the sooner um, we can start to design that condition and design for that condition mm-hmm. as opposed to the myth of you know like the physical reality yeah. of a city being the, the sole point of experience. I want to end this this um, interview, this talk with you, um, Liam, um, with the Neon Five. <laughs> so um, I will ask you a single recommendation in five categories. Yep. And uh, let's start with books. Which which book do you recommend to read? Um, at the moment, I think a really important book would be The City in the City by Chani Mieva, which is kind of like a sci-fi fantasy novel, but it's talking about two imaginary cities that totally co- coexist in the same physical reality. And it's a strange kind of surrealist novel, but I think it's an amazing description of augmented reality and virtual reality right now. So if you read it as a speculation on AR, yeah. then I think it's super okay. exciting. Yeah, wow, that's, mm. that's definitely, we're definitely going to read. Um, an event or a conference? Um, it's funny, I, I most of the conferences and events I go to are, um, are ones that I'm speaking at. Yeah. yeah. Um, the next one I'm speaking at is uh, is Stripe Festival okay. in Eindhoven. Eindhoven yes. um, 
uh, where we're going to do a performance. But um, the ones that I most enjoy are ones that are outside of my comfort zone. So I don't know if I would have a particular reference um, or particular event to go to, but I would just make a claim for people to go to a conference totally outside of their discipline, right? Go to a, a conference of geoengineers, yeah. you know, or go to a conference of climate scientists or urban policy makers or something, you know. Um, go to an event that um, is really outside of your comfort zone. Yeah. So that you get totally inspired, totally... Yeah, you, you, you just see another another way of looking in on the yeah. world. Yeah. You know, like what I do to try and get out of my network bubble is is follow Fox News on Twitter, right? Because if I just sat, sat reading my Facebook feed, I would think it's all going to be fine. You know, everyone else agrees with me. It's all great. We're going to yeah, yeah, yeah. protest against Trump. He's going to be impeached and it's yeah. going to be fine. But then you read Fox News and you realize, hold on, there's a massive proportion of the public uh, that are thinking very different to me. Yeah. And I think part of going to events is to open yourself up to those alternative points of view. Yes, right. That's true. Um, food. Um, I'm not a big food guy, but um, uh, I love um, the the Dutch fries. Dutch fries, yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a potato man. Yeah, okay, with mayonnaise. <laughs> yeah, with, with mayonnaise, with of course. Mayonnaise. Okay, of okay, course. Okay. <laughs> and um, movie or a television series or um, which I've seen lately. Well, I think it has to be Black Mirror. Um, okay. Uh, I mean, I think it, Black Mirror is one of the greatest pieces of speculative fiction in the last decade Um, and it's a real exploration of our contemporary relationship to technology and screen culture and mobile networks and social media yeah Um, last miscellaneous it's Mm -hmm. a bit noisy but um, that's why miscellaneous anything from your life that you would recommend um travel I think like a big part of my life is going to places that people don't normally buy tickets to and I still think it's important even though we can get on Google and travel to different places I think still think it's critical that we physically go places that we physically explore the world and meet people who are living very different lives to ours Um, so I think that's the duty of all contemporary global citizens yeah. is to get out into the world and and uh, explore it. Yeah. Great. Thank you. No, a pleasure. Thanks so much.